Welcome to Professional Planner's new Ethics and Professionalism podcast series. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and editor of Professional Planner magazine. In this new series, we will engage an ethics expert and a practitioner to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a culmination of factors, including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations, with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's new Code of Ethics. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Alan Gray, the Contrarian Investment Manager. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Go to alangray.com.au to find out more. Today, we're privileged to be joined by Jeff Thurecht and um, Michael Collins. How are you, gentlemen? Fine, thanks. Yeah. Really Cheers. well. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us along. Yeah, very, you're most welcome. So thanks for being along. I'll, I'll just go through a little quick bio um, of the two gentlemen we have here today. Michael Collins is a lecturer in management at the University of Queensland. Michael joined the business school in 2019 after completing a PhD in organisation and management at UNSW Business School in 2016. Prior to this, he served as a commissioned officer in the Australian Defence Force for 15 years and as a director of a management consultancy. Professional Planner recently featured Michael's views based on a paper he penned entitled Ethical Intelligence, Helping Good People Avoid Bad Decisions. And Jeff Furecht is a managing director and financial advisor at Everlesco, a privately owned and licensed financial advice business now in its 11th year of existence located in Sydney CBD. Jeff is now enjoying his 22nd year in financial advice. He recently finished a five-year stint as a director of the Association of Financial Advisors, and he is currently on the Professional Planner Advisory Board. What are the challenges that that organisations and companies, Michael, face creating an environment that promotes ethical behaviours and perhaps catches unethical behaviours? I think it's a good, good question and it's a good way to start the conversation. I think there are sort of three key challenges that organisations have um, and I'm going to explain what those are. So firstly, I think it's a common challenge in knowing the difference between what you might call deliberate and unconscious misconduct. The two are quite different. So, for example, uh, deliberate misconduct is where the person knows right up front that it's unethical before they do it. Uh, and, and they're consciously aware that that decision or that issue is unethical. And the second one's a lot harder for organisations and managers to get their head around, and that's unconscious. When the person only becomes aware of it, that it's actually unethical after they do it. And that's what we just determine or describe as an ethical blind spot. And that is, you know, a pattern of sort of biased decisions and actions and behaviours which is motivated by someone's self-interest, and that's not always obvious. The difference between deliberate and unconscious is often hard for people to get their head around. Yeah. Secondly, Sorry, it's, Michael. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Secondly, it's, it's difficult to avoid the one size fits all solution, you know, where because the fact is that some people are more likely or vulnerable to take unethical behaviour. And that's due to sort of a combination of their personality and the situation, which I can elaborate if, if, you're, um, if you're ready for that. Um, do you want me to talk about that? No? 
Yeah, no, please. Yep, go, go ahead. Yeah. So, for example, you know, a lot of the research that I've done and others talks about people who uh, tend to make rash and impulsive decisions and actions. It's what psychologists have studied and called disinhibition. And um, the broader research of that also involves things like, you know, gambling addictions, um, substance abuse like alcohol, drugs, and other antisocial and risky behaviours, including an explanation for psychopathy or psychopaths and ADHD. So it's a very well studied um, area and it's quite you know, common in society. That's the personality or background bit to the individual. And then there's the second bit is the situation they find themselves in. You know, particularly if they're working in an environment where there are tough um, performance goals or under time pressure, there's a competitive element with, where there are real wins and losses uh, in terms of outcomes. And often the situation is ambiguous. There's often no clear or right um, solution or answer. And the third and final area is, you know, what how we commonly approach this is through education and sanctions or punishments in organisations. But the type of person I just described has actually very little impact on them. And the reason for that is all that education and sanctions, frankly, is preaching to the converted. You know, most employees know what's unethical. You hire them, particularly in this industry, based on that. And they can often resist temptation, you know, so they're not impulsive. The people that I'm talking about, um, weak or rarely applied patients won't change their behaviour. And, and the reason for that is they can't accurately judge the likelihood of getting caught. In fact, I don't believe they're going to get caught. Not from when you interview them afterwards, that's what they say. And so, ironically, patients have to be strong and regularly applied for them to notice. And what that actually does, it actually works against the very people who are least likely to offend, those that are risk-averse and cautious employees. Mm. Mm. Uh, and that's, so those three reasons are, are, I think, are the key challenges that um, organisations face. Yeah, and we often hear the old adage, you know, there's a few bad apples and, um, you know, if we're to get, get rid of those bad apples somehow, you know, the industry is going to be improved. And, and, and that, that adage almost, you know, is, uh, touches on what you're saying there a little bit as well, isn't it? Because um, those few bad apples... Um, need to be punished in order to be removed from the industry. They're not going to just um, transform them, form themselves mm-hmm. in a way. Um, is that kind of what you're saying there a little bit? And yeah. Well, yeah, a bit of that. You see, the problem with the so-called bad apples theory is often those bad apples are consciously aware and are planned and thought for some time about misconduct and they're actively, they know what they're doing, Okay. Um, and, yeah, you're going to get that anyway. And, and therefore, sanction and, and education catches those quite clearly. It's the ones that are almost like the rabbit in the spotlight, but after the event, they're flabbergasted of actually done anything wrong. And you saw this during the Banking Royal Commission where they interviewed some senior executives who were adamant that they've actually done nothing wrong. Mm. And I honestly believe they still don't, I know mm. one or two personally, they still don't think they did anything wrong. Mm. So that's what we call this sort of ethical blind spot. So they judge the situation very differently to the broader population. In their mind, they justify and their desire to achieve, say, a bonus or success overweighs their rational conscious decision-making in the way that other people would mm. see the situation. And that's what we, we term a bias. It's a biased way of thinking. Yeah. And that's actually more common than, than we'd realise. Yeah. Jeff, as a practising advisor... It must have been a tough year watching the Royal Commission. Um, did you have any takeaways from some of the performances you saw on the stand and, and I suppose, uh, relating to uh, some of the behaviours that uh, Michael described there? Yeah, I think one of the key 
things that popped into my head when Michael was talking about is there's been so much attention to the things that have gone wrong and, you know, the areas that we need to improve on and the punishments and enforcement and all that sort of stuff. And it's really hard as as an employer and as an advisor who's dealing with clients to maintain a degree of positivity whilst realising we need to be changing and adapting to the new environment. And I think that's something that, you know, I've just sort of clicked on recently in our business that, you know, we spent so much time, you know, banging on about the compliance elements, banging on about what we need to change and all the issues that have come out of it. Maybe now we need to, you know, we think we've got the right people in the team and, and we don't need to continue reinforcing that. We need to support them to, I guess, focus on the positive aspects of it, which which is a it's a challenge, I think. Uh, but as an industry, it's one that we, we've got to constantly face into. That's actually a really good point you raised there, Jeff, because, you know, what you really don't want to happen here is the pendulum swings the other way. And as an employer, you become sort of overly observant, compliant, focused, and you really come down heavily on it. And that's probably going to ruin a business. Yeah. You know, and that's what I'm saying is I'm, I doubt very much, even if you were to do that, it would make any difference to an ethical <laughs> behaviour. In fact, you'd have high turnover and those people yeah. who are a good performance going to wonder, well, why should I work here? So I suppose the main point I'm saying is increased compliance, increased education about codes that, that most people are already going to abide by and understand and agree with is not a solution. Yeah. yeah. I think that's something that as, a, as an industry, I, I feel like we've become a compliance-centric industry and everybody talks about they run a client-centric business and we're all about the client. Yeah. But realistically, the frameworks we've got in place now makes that really hard. So mm-hmm. when we've become a compliance-centric business and a compliance-centric industry, it's hard to move away from because that's all about the stick and it's all about you know, complying. So it's hard to move away from that and focus on the client and what's in the best interest of the client all the time. I agree, yeah. What, what are some tips, um, Michael, for Jeff and, and other listeners who might be in a position where they have an advice business, as many are, and perhaps are practising advisors to bring in some of those um, positive elements relating to ethics that don't relate so much to, I suppose, compliance and, uh, and rules and coming down hard. What, what are some, some ways that um, practice owners perhaps can introduce, um, you know, or grow their, their advisors and their, and, their, um, and their staff's ethical intelligence? That's a good question. I think there's sort of four things that sort of stand out for me in terms of the research and practice that I've been involved in. Um, I think the first thing is along the sort of lines of, you know, this only affects a, a small number of people in orientation. In line with how you would normally recruit and hire people or maybe promote them into more senior and high-risk roles, um, I think it's it's prudent to actually um, use some newly developed measures uh, which are on the market that can help um, identify those employees who have more impulsive tendencies you know, because once you know that they have this inclination to act a certain way, you can do something about it, you know, either in providing targeted training to help them actually recognise and importantly anticipate where their ethical blind spots might be. So it's old adage, uh, you know, pre-warned is pre-armed and therefore you can actually act proactively in helping that person deal with them. Secondly, there's things you can do as a manager or leader in an organisation which helps avoid these ethical blind spots. And there are three things in particular that come to mind. And firstly is the idea about enforcing what, what I call reflection time. So impulsive behaviour is by its nature rash and, and not well thought through. So if you have methods and processes and ways of stopping, pausing, thinking, and importantly seeking multiple views and multiple perspectives from other people, then that's going to do, do a lot towards reducing the risk of ethical decisions. 
Um, secondly, ethical dilemmas occur in ambiguity and uncertainty. So if you can actually break down a problem, simplify it, make it less complex or less ambiguous, that also helps in decision making. And finally, um, in a business, um, implementing more open and transparent decision making process. So ethics, unethical behaviour and misconduct thrives in the dark or, you know, when it's not open. But if you have processes where you review things, you're open as to the, the reasons you made it, make a decision and they're, they're open for others to understand and look at, then you'll also reduce uh, the incidence of misconduct. Yeah, there's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot there, Michael. I just had one question I wanted to ask you, um, you know, as you were talking there. Um, do, do people, are people, um, you know, for want of a better phrase, born unethical. Uh, you know, is it in their is it in their makeup, or uh, or to what extent is their situational or environmental factors yeah, play a role yeah. in in their ethics? Um, it's a it's a born that way argument. <laughs> I can't change. So I'm born bad. Uh, look, um, very few people are like that. I mean, most of them are incarcerated, locked up, and that's like a massive effort from life. And, and you wouldn't want to employ those people in your business. Um, but it's a combination of factors. I mentioned personality. So, again, look at people who, who and we all know them. We work with them, we, you know, they're rash, they're impulsive, they act before thinking, you know. Um, it's temptations in their way that they really struggle to hold themselves back. And that's what we call those addictive type of behaviours. So there's a lot of evidence to show that, yeah, there's an element of addictiveness in certain people from day to day. But secondly, the point you make is most of that, a lot of that depends on the situation. So if temptation's in the way, if, you, if, you, if it's ambiguous, you're not too sure what's right or wrong, and you're an impulsive person, then you're going to act before you think. And let's face it, um, research and experience shows that most people act in their best interests. But there's a bonus, an opportunity to make money there, you know, and, you know, it's sort of like feels like the right thing and, you know, no one else is paying attention I'm going to do it. And then I realised later on, someone says, well, actually, you shouldn't have done that. I certainly wouldn't be thinking that. Yeah. So it's a combination. I, I think what you're describing there, Michael, is uh, is almost, you know, to a T, the theoretical of of what the advice industry has almost, um, you know, come through in a way, Jeff, don't you mm. think? I mean, we've really been in that scenario where, you know, through that kind of lost leader, dealer group model that institutions yeah. have had, that um, you know, where 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 product where where you know advice businesses you know let's face it have been used as um, you know distribution mechanisms for for product sales. Um, it it, do, it shouldn't be surprising based on you know what Michael's That's saying right. there, the theoretical that advisors have you know found themselves in that situation. What's your reflection on that, Jeff, and and kind of how we can as, as an industry or how you can and as an industry. Um, you know, I, I guess leap from there to, to, I suppose, that professional status. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. And I think a big part of it is uh, a point that I sort of wrote down there when Michael was talking. It was around ambiguity and uncertainty creates ethical dilemmas. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the crux of what the issues are right now because, as Matt said, we're going from where we were and we're, we're all on the same page, I think, broadly heading in the right direction. But there's so much ambiguity and uncertainty about exactly what we're doing now and how we do that, and that creates the uncertainty. And, and I think some of the scenarios that we'll sort of talk through highlight some of that ambiguity. Um, but I think we've got to also give ourselves a break and expect that, you know, we can't change overnight from, you know, what we were doing to, you know, what we're now expected to be doing. And for some people it's a big change. For some people it's, you know, not, not a big change. So we've got to give ourselves a break and understand that, you know, 
what we were doing was still doing a good job just under a different framework and, and different sets of rules and uh, with different opportunities. So, yeah, except that, yeah, we were doing okay and now we've got an opportunity to, to do well within a new environment as well. Yeah, look, yeah, yeah sorry, Michael. So just to add to what you're saying, Jeff, I think there's, um, I think it's like, you know, you guys understand it's about managing risk, you know what I mean? So if you would apply a one-size-fits-all approach to this problem, then you're going to create more problems. It's about identifying individuals in your business who are more prone to do this because you know them really well and you know how they might react under pressure. So this is all about, you know, um, difficult, ambiguous pressure situations. And I agree with you. I think there's a lot of advisors and business owners out there really worried about how they're going to implement this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, really looking forward to get into the uh, scenarios, which we will do uh, in a second. Um, but just uh, I wanted to pick you up on one point as well. Uh, you mentioned the code and mm. um, uh, and I'm wondering to what extent codes are effective, you know, and, and based on the research you've done. Uh, we now had a, have a, a code of ethics. It's the first, my understanding is it's the first, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, uh, the first statutory code um, for a professional services industry globally. My understanding is um, the NZ uh, FMA is um, bringing in a code that'll, that'll also be a statutory code and the UK regulator has a code of conduct, but this, um, you know, the, the FASIA code of ethics is, um, co- uh, is the first statutory code for a professional service industry. Well, so we're breaking new ground here in Australia. To what extent are codes effective in changing behaviour or, 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 um, or creating a more ethical, um, you know, industry? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, it's an essential first step. I mean, there's there's nothing better than being really clear and transparent about what the expectations are, and code does that really well. Um, as I alluded to, um, codes in and of themselves aren't going to change behaviour. And unfortunately, I think, and we saw this in the Banking Royal Commission, people are waiting to see what action is taken. So the code's only going to be as effective as, as what actions arise out of, out of it, you know? and that's that's going to be the key thing. Well, what do you think, Jeff? I think uh, I, I agree with what you said in terms of ma- mapping it out as a good starting point for some clear points. I think that there's still not that clarity on some of the specific individual standards. And yeah. um, I was at a, uh, a session recently where there was some questions being discussed and, you know, 40 people in a room with 50 different opinions about how you apply one of the standards yeah. and, and how it affects our business. And, and perhaps we're not going to get that clarity until it is tested or, you know, the application mm. of it is put in place. Yeah. So We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenario to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions. Less following the pack, more conviction. That's the Alan Gray difference. Alan Gray take a contrarian investment approach, apply it consistently and invest for the long term. After all, You can't invest the same way as everyone else and expect a different result. Find out more at alangray.com.au. And that's a great segue because, I mean, what we want to do here today and what we're doing in this series is going through some ethical scenarios and and, 
um, addressing some of the ambiguities, you know, in 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 the code through worked examples. So um, let's dig into that right now. So as you know, we asked our readers for ethical scenarios. Um, we now have three scenarios we'll walk through with uh, Michael and Jeff to talk about how reasonably acceptable actions might be interpreted by the ethics expert and a frontline advisor in um, in the context of the new code. So this first one's kind of a long one. It's entitled My Ongoing Client Relationship Dilemma. And I think I, I think this is a, a really interesting and thoughtful submission. Um, um, my ethical dilemma relates to ongoing clients who are largely bedded in from a strategy perspective, but are maintaining an ongoing client relationship with me because they like to have the ability to call me for reassurance without worrying about being invoiced or at an hourly rate, basically because they like me. Financially, these clients significantly underpin my business and I am meeting my compliance obligations by continuing to review them and meeting my service agreements. They do also knowingly sign on to this every second year. However, from a purist ethical standpoint, I should strongly encourage these clients to sever their relationship with me because the heavy lifting has been done and they will set up uh, and they are well set up for the long term. And I'm sure it's in their best financial interest to not continue to pay me $2,000 a year to have their portfolios tinkered with and have a cup of tea with me um, because they would probably do okay on their own. That said, if I turn to all these clients off tomorrow, my business would probably fold which leaves me to wonder if I should even be a financial planner since I'm apparently not running a viable business that can make that can make it without charging ongoing fees to clients that strictly don't require the service um, it's a it's a bit more existential than um, than ethical um, <laughs> but I think it's a fascinating conversation I, I'll, I'll start with you Michael thoughts on that one mm-hmm. Yeah, look, um, I should imagine a lot of financial planners think this from time to time and and even consultants think this way as well. But I'd argue is it really an ethical dilemma because, you know, you might argue that peace of mind and reassurance is a good service outcome if if you're buying uh, those sorts of services. And also importantly, client situations change over time. So you might be in a good financial position one year, but it may not be the case another. So I think it's good to have regular financial health check the same way that you go and visit a doctor after you turn 50 every year or two just to check that everything's in order. This may be more of an issue of, you know, maybe what's a realistic fee structure and in what way does that advisor feel like the client and the client feels like they're getting value for money. That, that's me. Uh, it's about that. Yeah. Now, now, Jeff, to what extent are you across um, the new OSA um you know, recommendations from the Royal Commission and do you think um, that's kind of what Commissioner Hayne was talking about uh, in relation to this type of ongoing relationship? Yeah, definitely. I definitely do think that is what he was talking about and, you know, we're across it to a degree. We've been working towards implementing annual service agreements for new clients for the last three years, so that's a pretty standard practice for new clients but obviously we've got a lot of clients who, you know, may be considered on an arrangement similar to this because they've been clients of the business for, you know, eight years before that. Um, one thing that comes to my mind, and, and I reckon this is something that so many people are grappling with right now, this is, you know, a number one challenge for a lot of businesses, how they're going to adapt to this arrangement. And a big part of it to me is I just think advisors' confidence has just been bashed because this, this advisor, from the sound of it, given that he's so thoughtful about it, I reckon he's doing a great job for his clients. And I reckon they value, and that $2,000 is money really well spent, He's just been told that the way he's delivering that now is not consistent with that new framework, which is, to me, 
that's the compliance-centric focus. It's not a, not, a, not a client-centric focus. From a client's viewpoint, I reckon he's probably doing a fantastic job. And if he asked his clients what they value and how much they're willing to pay, they'd be happy to pay the $2,000. So that, you know, again, if he's not adding, if he's not providing value and he's not providing services, then by all means don't charge them any money. Like you've got to turn that off. But I think the majority of advisors are now focused on, well, how do you communicate what you've done for those clients? How do you make sure it is value? So you've probably got to spend more time asking the clients what they do value going forward because then you've got to make sure you're lining up directly the the dollar figures you're putting on it with the things that you're delivering and then the expectation is that you're documenting and communicating that through an advice document or something like that to show that you've delivered it so you know that's probably the big change rather than having an offer of a review and being there when they want to call up you've you know most advisors are still doing something even when the client doesn't call up they're, they're reviewing the portfolio they're keeping across you know, on top of all the issues going on with the clients, they're contacting them proactively if something does need to change. It's just we haven't necessarily all been as good at communicating and articulating that on a regular basis as we could have been. So this is an opportunity to, to look at that and, and say, well, you know, am I delivering value? Is this the value that you want? Is it the right level of fees? Is it the right level of service? Um, but, you know, my key takeaway is don't let those people externally bash your confidence, like be confident. If you're doing a good job, you're doing a good job regardless of, you know, what the regulations say. Yeah, great. Good, uh, good insight there, Jeff. Um, what if I was to push that a little bit further? A lot of conversations around intermittent advice and, and, what, a, and what a fee model might kind of look like, you know, in a couple of years down the track when some of this, these um, forward-looking service agreements are in place. Um, any thoughts around as a business owner and an advisor, any thoughts around how advice might be, might change in relation to how it's charged in the, in the future? Yeah, definitely. I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that and, and, you know, trying to, uh, exercise different models. And one thing that, you know, does come to mind, if you're engaging on a 12 monthly basis, there's the opportunity to, to think about, well, what was the value that was delivered in the last 12 months and what might we need to do to help you in the next 12 months? And I think we need to get more comfortable with the answer to that might be nothing. And so if the answer is nothing for the next 12 months, then that's okay. So don't pay us a fee or pay us a vastly reduced fee just so we can keep your house in order. And then we'll come back to you and say, well, you know, in 12 months time, what do we need to do then? And that's something that we haven't been comfortable with. I think it opens up a really big can of worms in that, you know, if something goes wrong in that 12 months or something does change and the client doesn't tell us or, you know, are we expected to be proactively contacting them? Mm-hmm. And so where's the liability lie there? Um, so from a practical viewpoint, I'm not 100% crystal clear on, on that. Um, but I think from a, I guess, a, a structured viewpoint, I think we all need to get more comfortable with thinking that just because a client isn't paying his fee every year doesn't mean they don't think that we're still their advisor or they don't still want to help some help from us at some point in time. Um, we've had experiences of, you know, clients who have been, you know, what we thought they were disengaged for, you know, a couple of years. We'd send them out a review. We'd send them out a, you know, if they didn't want to come in for a meeting, we'd send them out a report and say, this is where things are at. These are the things we think you need to think about. Give us a call. And they'd, you know, send back down, no, we're right or, you know, something like that. But then four years later, they'll pick up the phone and go, yeah, we really need your help with this and this and this because you know you know us and you know where we're at and and. That, you know, they've always thought we were their advisor. They just didn't need to talk to us all the time. So 
that's a bit of a mind shift that we could could be uh, getting used to. Yeah, it was interesting just during that, um, uh, you know, conversation you um, brought up, you, you switched from talking about obligations to clients in an ethical sense and then where does our obligation lie? Um, because as we know, you know, we've just gone through a period where, you know, the, the regulators kind of coming in looking at all these client files, files and, and, and f- figuring out ways where, um, you know, the, the compliance wasn't met. And, you know, I've heard so many people in the industry talk about um, how, you know, their advice perhaps in retrospect looks non-compliant. So you've got to tick those boxes, don't you? To what extent, Michael, you know, are those compliance and regulatory, I suppose, um, you know, barriers or hurdles, uh, you know, impacting um, perhaps what, what you know, the, the ethical way in which, you know, advisors might naturally, you know, mm-hmm. um, deal with and approach clients? Well, I think what you're saying is on the money, you know, because it, as you said earlier, if you're focusing on the compliance side, then you're missing the point of the relationship side. Yeah. And I think most people would agree that um, financial concerns are often one of the top three concerns that people have. And just having someone who knows you and knows your situation is able to offer you advice is a lot of comfort for people, you know. Um, and I think what, what's coming out of this particular scenario is exactly around fee structures, and it's no different to any other service industry or, or, or service or consulting uh, organisation. Now, so for, so, for example, when I consult with my um, accountant, you know, uh, the fee arrangement with, with him is around a payment for a particular service at a point in time. But that doesn't stop me from ringing him every now and then to get some advice and say purchasing a property or something like that. So in a similar way, to me, this really comes down to the client saying, hey, I'm getting value for money. And exactly as Jeff said, the advisor feeling confident that they're charging a fee that they think is commensurate with that service. Yeah, and that's an advisor relationship. Yeah, great. Um, Scenario number two, but who benefits from the rebate? Um, In the days of volume bonuses, the licensee and business owner for whom I was working rebated these commissions from the volume bonuses to his clients, um, which had the effect of reducing um, the administration fees. Um, When he sold the business to a new licensee and business owner, um, the volume bonus uh, were retained, um, but but they would not allow us to inform the clients of this. Um, This meant that effectively their fees increased, um, but they were not informed. Who is my obligation to here, the licensee or the client? And how should this issue be approached considering my commercial and regulatory obligations? Michael, do you want to have a crack at that? I think, I don't know about you, Jeff, but to me, this is pretty clear cut in line with the standard two um, of the code, which is around the best interest of the client. You know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the client's interest should be first and foremost. Um, And I don't know, in this situation, you might or this person might have already raised it with the licensee, but I'd, I'd say you're now obliged next year by law to actually inform a client. I don't know, that's my, my view on it. What do you reckon? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, I reckon on paper, you're exactly right. And it's you know, pretty clear cut. Best interest of the client has to come first. I think where the conflict arises is the code is a code which is specific and addressed to the advisor. Much of the compliance regulations are addressed to a licensee. Mm-hmm. So there's licensee responsibilities to you know, enforce the, the the standards and the rules and, and you know, the advisor's got to kind of comply with the licensee standards. So, again, it comes back to that client-centric versus compliance-centric, which is probably getting a bit boring by now. But um, so, you know, I think it's a real one in that obviously from a code viewpoint, the advisor goes, well, I've got to tell the client we've got to, 
you know, rebate the fees. We've got to do what's in the best interest of them. But then the licensee is the one who gives them their authority to provide that advice. And mm. if you operate outside the standards of that license, then, you know, you, you're in breach of, I think it's the first standard, which is <laughs> operating outside the law. So it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. um, so, so I, I think on paper, yeah, no brainer. I think in reality, it, this is a real one. I think obviously as, you know, volume bonuses and grandfather commission, all that sort of get, get phased out, it's going to be less of a, a dilemma. But I think right now we're seeing, you know, a lot of conversation around some of these types of payments and, you know, um, buyer of last resort and all these types of things, which can sort of be linked into that and go, well, what's in the best interest of the client? What am I losing? What am I gaining? Um, how do you reconcile that? Uh, so I think it is, it is a challenge in this in this transition phase. It, it is a challenge, mm. and particularly in this transition phase, um, you know, the, the environment um, seems to me, from an outsider's perspective, quite fraught as well. I mean, you know, a lot of advisors perhaps are, you know, cast aside by you know their licensees, and um, you know, perhaps not wanting to to take on the responsibility of of um, you know being a licensee. They need to find a, a new licensee. So perhaps there's a lot of advisors out there who are in a situation where they've just joined a new licensee, and um, you know it also comes down to: well, do you want to start agitating, um, you know, for for change the moment you get into a licensee in an environment where um, some of these relationships are tenuous and fraught and difficult? Um, Absolutely, Michael. I mean, yeah, that, you're spot on. That does create a real ethical dilemma for that advisor. I hate to be in that situation. So if you want to do, in inverted commas, the right thing, you know, you'd really push the issue. But in doing so, you might lose your job, you know. Um, so it is a real ethical dilemma. And I have no doubt over the next year or so, there'll be some advisors that really, for want of a better word, hold off moral high ground and, and are out of work as a result of it, you know, or do you turn a blind eye to it and say, well, everyone else is doing it, what power do I have, therefore I'll just take a line. Um, and I think each individual needs to make that decision based on their own circumstances. But I should imagine pretty tough, um, you know, trying to think that through. Yeah. I think especially if, if you're an employed, employed advisor or you're, you know, an advisor working for a larger dealer group, you know, how, how much influence can you really have? And you know if you're doing if you're doing a fantastic job and everything else is going really well and this this is an issue that you know comes up and affects a small portion of your clients it's like you know how much do you kick up a stink about that or do you mm. just you know continue you to do a great right. job for ninety yeah. percent of your clients and that's yeah I don't I'm fortunate I don't have to face that specific dilemma right now because it's a hard one I reckon mm. how um, how difficult is it for individuals Michael to to be a catalyst for change within organisations. Um, you know, it, we've probably all been in a situation where where we feel like um, we need to do something different, but it's so difficult to change the temperature or run, you know swim against the current. Um, it probably takes a lot of time and 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 energy and effort to be a catalyst for change. Any any of that come up in your research? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's uh, numerous examples. I mean, you think about the Banking Royal Commission. I know we're harping on it, but that, the whole whistleblower scheme and how these things get exposed. I'm not one in saying that you know, financial advisors should be blowing the whistle, but but it, it is a it is a huge ethical and a dilemma for people, and it has a lot of negative repercussions. You know, I mean, because that could literally be the end of your career, um, and you may never get a job again. And yeah, say you you know you've got a mortgage, you've got you know, kids, you're raising a family. 
So I'm, I'm saying each situation is different. Mm. Um, but then again, you know, you have seen situations where uh, whistleblowers have really started uh, major investigations, you know, and commissions of inquiry. Um, so again, I think it comes down to the, the crux of the issue is, is what I would call the moral courage to be able to stand up, even though you're going to be incredibly unpopular. And that's difficult for most people. Yeah, great. Um, push on to the third and final ethical scenario um, here. We've anchored this um, this session to um, the situational and organisational, you know, ethical conundrums, um, you know, by purpose, um, you know, given Michael's um, focus of study, I thought that was kind of a good way to do it. Other um, other uh, episodes in the series will kind of delve more into perhaps the client-facing and more behavioural factors. Um, but this one, the third one is is more of a, a kind of a client-facing, you know, behavioural factor. Uh, the first two were more situational or organisational structural type of issues. Um, this one's called diminished capacity of ageing company directors and SMSF trustees. As a trustee, there are fiduciary duties um, you're obliged to carry out um, which require appre- uh, appreciating and evaluating um, what we, the advisor, are putting forward. This requires the full function of cognitive constructs like a working memory, reasoning, future thinking, judgment, and appraisal. Our client can demonstrate compassion, empathy, and hold a civil conversation, which portrays a person that who on the surface appears to have full cognition. However, I've noticed a different level of acceptance of what I suggest in the portfolio reviews where clients now agrees to every, the client now agrees to everything. Uh, he is no longer actively participating in probing dialogue of the pros and cons of the investment strategies and products um, as he once did. Uh, there are a few issues here that the um, submitter of this scenario raises. I'll just skip to the conclusion and then um, raise the issues. Um, what we don't want to happen is a challenge to our recommendation and strategies from the power of attorney or executors and beneficiaries of the client at some time in the future when markets drop in value such as another GFC, um, which is fair enough. So the issues um, here, there's three issues the, the advisor raises. How do I alert um, the other trustees or if a sole director their family without offence? Um, what do I actually say? The complexity of running their own superannuation fund is now um, approaching the point where my ethical and moral advice is to wind it up. Um, Their need and image of controlling um, their own affairs is now an issue. And I'm asking um, them to confront their own capacity and admit they are losing it, so to speak. Um, In winding up the SMSF and rolling over to a public offer fund means a um, means a loss of revenue to our business. So there are a couple of factors to throw into the mix there as well. I'll ask uh, Michael to kick off uh, again as well. Yeah, this is a really good one um, in the sense that, and I can see Jeff nodding his head there, uh, it, it is real, a real ethical dilemma for the advisor in this case because that very last point about a loss of revenue to our business is the whole self-interest piece. And in many respects, for most people, it would be easy to turn a blind eye to this and just keep doing what you're doing. Um, but if you think, you know, if I look to the standard, standard five about the client has to have a clear understanding, then the very first thing you need to do is test your own assumptions here. For example, um, I would be getting a second uh, opinion and feeling reasonably certain that this is actually an issue of cognitive impairment. For example, they might love this advice and you've developed such a good relationship that, you know, whatever advice you give, they're going to accept 
with that, that question. Or you may even be wrong about the cognitive thing or, or overreacting. Um, but if you sort of sought some advice from maybe another professional in, in this sort of area, you know, some a cognitive um, psychologist or something based on what you've observed, and you're pretty confident that you've got the evidence to suspect that it is a cognitive um, issue, then you, I think you need to do something about it. And this is the tricky bit, you know. Um, so how I might approach this is actually explain to the client your legal obligation. You've got a framework that, oh, you've got a, the law requires you to do this, and it's actually in their best interest, even though it might be uncomfortable. You might advise that they actually get some sort of professional help or, or perspective or assessment of this. Um, you know, I don't know, Jeff, you'll have a better understanding than I would, but, you know, you might even say that you actually can't act for them until they do so, or you, you might sort of suspend any advice until they've done that and you've got evidence they've done that. Um, and the final point I make is, okay, you're going to lose some revenue. It's an unfortunate consequence, but I reckon it'd be unethical to receive a financial advantage from someone suspect doesn't have the cognitive capacity to make decisions. You know, that in any case in law, that would be against the law, you know. Yeah, thanks, Michael and, and and Jeff. And and the first question was quite specific as well, so I'll, I'll hold you to it. Um, how do I alert the the other trustee, or if a sole practitioner, their family without offence? What actually do I say? So, um, yeah, well, your thoughts? I think uh, it, it, as Michael said, it's a great scenario. I reckon it's happening all the time, and it's only going to get more common with the ageing population and yeah. the prevalence of self managed super funds. So, I think it's a really important thing to think about. Um, what do you actually say? I think having those hard conversations has to come with the territory of being a professional advisor. So I think to a degree um, you've just got to be upfront and direct with the client and you've got to establish that as part of the relationship. And, and you know, interesting point Michael raised about having a, a framework or getting a second opinion. I think that would be really helpful and something maybe as an industry we can work on. How do you actually assess their, you know, the cognitive abilities and, and the client because that would support the conversation to a degree and not make it all about your opinion versus their opinion. Um, so, you know, from my viewpoint, it would be a case of, well, you know, this is what I've noticed. You, you've become less engaged in the conversation. You've, um, you know, seem to be deferring more of the decision-making process. As the trustee of your own self-managed super fund, ultimately responsibility rests with you. Um, do you feel comfortable that you're still, you know, capable and confident in doing what you have been doing all along or or do you think there's some changes there? And, and you know, that might bear out some conversations that, that, that could sort of give you some support or they may be oblivious and sort of say, I don't know what you're talking about, in which case then you might have to go a bit further. Um, typically if you're acting for a self-managed super fund um, and there's more than one trustee, more than one trustee should be involved in the conversations and the meetings and the advice. So, you know, if you've just been dealing with that one person, you've got to get the other trustees involved anyway and that's that's effectively a legal obligation because they've got to sign off on the advice. So that's a, that's a, in some ways a simple sort of shortcut to having that conversation. You've got to get the other trustees involved. Um, other ways that we've seen um, of helping the conversation is to to raise the idea of bringing you know, younger family members in as members of the fund or something like that to, to support the decision-making and to, to benefit. I've seen that work really well and I've also seen that not work really well because that younger family member sort of had a little bit more of a bent towards their own self-interest than the interest of, of the uh, older members. So, you know, you've got to manage that. So that's not a fail-safe option. Um, yeah, so that's a few thoughts that I have. Yeah, on that one. and then <clears throat> the final point um, they made there was was the revenue issue to the business, which, you know, 
I mean, you're running a business at the end of the day. Um, well, I mean, just talk a little bit about, you know, obviously um, some of the, uh, you know, the issues as a practitioner, you know, relating to, 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 to those business decisions and how they intersect with, with the best interest of the client decision. Yeah, no, it, it can be tough. I think in this case, if, if it's just about the revenue, then, you know, best interest of the client has to come first, clearly. I think the other thing that, that maybe gets missed a little bit sometimes is focused on revenue versus profitability. Because sometimes if you're doing the administration for a self-managed super fund and, you know, so your revenue looks higher, but if you're spending all that time working, you're not actually making a profit on that. Sometimes it might actually be more profitable to charge the client the right fee to give them advice on the things that are relevant. And moving to a public offer fund still allows you to give them the useful investment advice and asset allocation and, you know, contribution or, you know, um, pension strategies and charge them a relevant fee for that. And so maybe that might actually add to your profit as opposed to being a detractor from, from the overall commercial arrangement. So um, I think this is an issue which, you know, perversely we, I think as an industry, this is one we can't blame the regulators for. This is one we've created ourselves because we've gone through this mad rush to set up everybody in a self-managed super fund and it's not going to be appropriate for everybody going forward. So how are we going to unwind it is, is an important consideration that we need to think about. Yeah. Great insights, uh, Jeff and Michael. Um, look, I've really enjoyed the conversation today. I, I hope everyone listening has as well. So um, thanks a lot, Jeff and Michael. And um, we'll see we'll we'll um, see everyone again um, for the next podcast, uh, where we'll have uh, three more scenarios to pick through. Thanks again, Jeff and Michael. Thanks. Mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism Podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes.